It can be argued that that which makes us truly human is our ability to create art. This is attested to in countless museums and private collections throughout the world. From Tutmose and Praxiteles to Van Gogh and Jackson Pollock, the need to create art transcends time and place, era and epoch, and is what has truly united us throughout the millennia. But this need didn't simply spring up out of nowhere with the rise of complex societies throughout the world. Far from it. Indeed, art goes back to the very beginning, when our earliest ancestors still lived in caves and hunted mammoths, woolly rhinos, and other now-extinct megafauna. In fact, one of the earliest representational works of art ever found comes down to us from this metaphorically dark period of human history, and continues to offer, in the over a century since its discovery, tantalizing clues as to its exact purpose. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and today we'll be turning back the clock to a time before history as we know it, to prehistory in fact, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. What we call prehistoric art can be found throughout the world, and varies based on subject and material. The earliest known works of art are a series of hand stencils and geometric shapes, as well as a painting of a trio of wild pigs in a natural cave formation on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia, which date to some 45,500 years ago. In the Sahara, rock art dating back to the end of the last ice age, when the vast desert with which we're now familiar was a grassy savanna, shows hunter-gatherers interacting with giraffes hippos, elephants, and even human-cat hybrids that are believed to be early deities. Even more famous than these are the renowned cave paintings of Lascaux in France, discovered in 1945 by a group of boys who were playing in an ancient cave on the outskirts of town. The images depict several species of extinct megafauna, including Megaloceros, a type of early elk, mammoths, rhinos, aurochs, and even some that are still with us, like horses, lions, and hyenas. Of these, the art found in the Sahara was carved on various rock faces, while the Sulawesi and Lascaux caves all employed red ochre, a natural clay material that will come in handy in today's episode, that served as an early form of paint and pigment. But while cave painting and rock carvings greatly characterized prehistoric art, they were by no means the only mediums in use at this time. Throughout Europe, several small limestone figurines were unearthed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, each of which depict women with exaggerated features such as curvaceous figures, large breasts, wide hips, and pronounced genitalia. These figures date back well into the Ice Age, some 25,000 to 30,000 years ago, and are sometimes known as fetish figures, quote-unquote, for their aforementioned exaggerations. Of these, the most famous is the so-named Venus of Willendorf, which was uncovered in the state of Lower Austria in 1908. On the morning of August 7th that year, a workman named Johann Ferran was digging at what archaeologists Josef Bayer, Hugo Obermeier, and Josef Jombati presumed had been a Paleolithic site, just outside the village of Willendorf on the left bank of the Danube River. It was a warm, sunny day, and Ferran had temporarily set his tools aside to wipe his brow when he noticed a curious object sticking out of the dirt. Reaching into the earth, he produced a strange sort of figurine. It appeared to be a woman, with plaited hair, or perhaps a ceremonial headdress, large breasts, and a voluptuous figure, with particular emphasis on her genitalia. It was reddish-brown, a sort of burnt umber in coloration, and was believed to be made of limestone, whose closest source was in the Italian Alps. Stunned, Ferran immediately turned the find over to the trio of archaeologists, who deemed, based upon other such figures that had been found throughout Europe, and the material from which it had been crafted, that it was quite old, likely dating back to humanity's collective infancy. With the advent of radiocarbon dating in the late 1940s, it was proven that such assumptions were indeed correct, though no one could have guessed just how old it actually was. 
It was revealed to be in the neighborhood of 25,000 to 30,000 years old, and based upon further radiocarbon dates from the soil from which it had been initially extracted, it had been in the ground for at least that long, though whether it had been ceremonially buried or simply forgotten remains unclear. As it was a female figure, initially believed to be a representation of some sort of fertility deity, Jombati famously bestowed upon it the now-famous moniker of the Venus of Willendorf, a reference to the Roman goddess of love, who was the subject of both sculpture and art from antiquity through the Renaissance. It's a name that isn't without its problems, with some archaeologists refusing to use it because the figurine dates from a time many thousands of years prior to the Greco-Roman pantheon. Alternative names include the Lady or Woman of Willendorf. But, in this armchair historian's humble opinion, to reduce the figurine from her divine status as a possible fertility figure to an average, presumably mortal woman is problematic. Yes, the concept of the goddess Venus didn't exist in prehistory, but it presents us with an example with which we might be able to contextualize her importance in and to Paleolithic European society, though the truth of the matter is that we don't really know for certain what the figurine meant or symbolized to them. To this day, 115 years after her initial discovery, debates continue to rage on the subject. As the figure doesn't have feet, it's unlikely that it was meant to stand on its own. Based upon its size, it's quite possible that it was a handheld charm or amulet that one could carry around and use on a daily basis. The question, however, remains, who or what exactly does the Venus of Willendorf depict? Most archaeologists at this point in time believe that, with her exaggerated features, particularly in the childbearing department, she's an early form of fertility goddess that was worshipped amongst Paleolithic European peoples. As giving birth in those days could be quite precarious, even life-threatening, it was seen as something truly sacred, and could also, perhaps, have been tied to these hunter-gatherer society's creation beliefs. Still others, namely archaeologists Catherine McCoy and Leroy McDermott, believe the figurine to be an early form of self-portrait created by a prehistoric female sculptor. They posit that the exaggerated features correlate with how parts of the female body would appear when looking down at themselves, which, they claim, would be the sole way for people to see their bodies in the days long before mirrors were invented. It's for this reason, McCoy and McDermott argue, that the sculpture has no face. It's an idea that isn't without its criticisms, though, as quote-unquote natural mirrors, such as puddles and natural water formations, like lakes or streams, would have provided reflective surfaces for early humans. So what exactly do we make of the Venus of Willendorf? As you can see, she provides more questions than answers at this point in time, and it's quite possible that we may never know for certain exactly what purpose she served for prehistoric Europeans. Like the fruit just always out of Tantalus's reach, she offers little clues that are tempting, but overall remain mysterious. Still, she provides a window into humanity's collective infancy, one that reveals to us just how far, or how little, we've come and changed since. Thank you, as always, for listening. I do so hope you enjoyed this brief segment on what's perhaps the most famous piece of sculpture to survive from our prehistory. Should you ever find yourself in Vienna, you can check her out at the Naturhistorisches Museum, the Natural History Museum, that is. What purpose do you think the Venus of Willendorf serve? I'd love to know what you think, so drop your theories in the comment section of the accompanying Instagram post. Just give me a follow at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company. Don't forget to tune in again next week for a comprehensive look at the man who inspired Dracula, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.